almost to the point where they're actually sitting in the exact same spot as where they would have sat had I set out the chairs. This week, a couple of people had a bit more fun. Thought they'd be rebel, but in fact, all they've done is proven that I thought second week around about three or four people will decide to, I'll show him. (laughs) Only problem being that (laughs) you just kind of prove my point. There's an old saying that says, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And so today, what we're going to be doing is looking at transforming our thinking. Now, you may be thinking, that's an interesting Palm Sunday sort of sermon. But the last couple of weeks, we've been leading up to Easter. Anyone work out the series? I gave it a... If you're on Facebook, you, you will have read... What I wrote on Facebook, if you didn't look at Facebook, then you'll, you may not quite understand my thinking. Wouldn't be the first, won't be the last. But this week we're going to look at transforming your thinking in light of what we looked at last week, which was the superiority of Christ. And our thinking can be transformed and should be transformed because we have an awesome God, which we studied the week before. And our thinking should be transformed because we have life in the Spirit, which we studied the week before that. And so as we look to Easter next week, what should our response to be to our awesome God who has superiority and offers us life in the Spirit? Our thinking should be different. And if we want to keep growing, we need to think differently. We need to challenge ourselves to look at the world differently to how we have looked at it so that we can continue to serve and grow and reflect Christ more effectively. Alan, you got that picture, mate? Yep, that one. Oh, that one. Is it? Because we've all seen pictures of Jesus over the years. And how do the pictures of Jesus look? How do pictures of Jesus look? Looks like he, he's put on a couple too many layers of sunscreen, hasn't been outdoors for about 20 years. And he's got perfect hair, like he just stepped out of a salon. Anyone... Anyone want to hesitate to guess at who this is? It does look a lot like Barabbas. That's a British historian. About 15 years ago, after much research and effort and time, 
That's probably what Jesus looked like. That face on the screen is a good chance Jesus looks similar to that. Not the traditional pictures we're used to looking at, is it? How does that make you feel? When I say to you, that's probably a very accurate representation of Jesus, how does that make you feel? What's that? Don't care? See, for many people, that Anglo-Saxon, long-haired, hasn't stepped out in the sun in 20 years picture of Jesus, that's all they've ever seen. To a lot of people, this picture is a shock. Now, maybe you're in shock and you don't want to admit it. Maybe you're going like, well, don't care. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in our reading, the first reading, Romans, which is where we're going to spend most of our time, we need to transform our thinking. And so what's the first response to God's awesomeness? It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself... Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. And so what does living sacrifice mean? Well, that's the obvious question, isn't it? If we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, what's the living sacrifice? Because whatever it is, it's being done in light of God's mercy, which we see in its true form at the cross. God's mercy not making us suffer the punishment for our sins. So what's a living sacrifice? Well, it stands in contrast for a start to the Old Testament where they sacrificed animals. The Old Testament, they sacrificed animals for sins. In the New Testament, Christ sacrificed himself once for all. We call that Easter, coming up in five days. But what's the living sacrifice? Often we say a living sacrifice is we offer our money, we offer our time, we offer our thoughts, we offer our actions, we, we serve other people in the family, we serve, look to serve people and show God's love in the community and that's what a living sacrifice is, don't we? Well that's actually not entirely true. When this verse says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, what they are, they're the of what God's really saying here. What he's really saying is he doesn't want the axe as such. What he wants is the person doing the axe. He wants the server, not the service. He wants you. 
He wants your attitude. He wants your character. He wants your thoughts. He wants your heart. I've got about five theology th- textbooks at home, big systematic theology books. I know there's over the years. Manny looked at one book I was reading the other day and he goes, wow, that's big. And it was just a book on Kindle. It's about 200 pages. He goes, that's incredible, 200 pages. So I showed him one of the theology textbooks, which has about 1,200 pages in it. And then he did his fake fainting. You can memorise that textbook if you want. Me, I'm not going to memorise it. That's not how my brain works. But you could memorise that whole textbook. But it doesn't make you a living sacrifice. Because that's head knowledge. God wants your heart. He wants who you are. And when he has what, who you are, and he is influencing you 24-7 every minute of every day, regardless of situation, regardless of where you're at, when he has your heart... These acts of service become natural. They are just a natural outworking of who you are, which is a living sacrifice to God. But if God doesn't have your heart 100%, then these works, these acts of service, you know them to be good, but sometimes they're a bit of an effort. Oh, I guess I better call such and such because I know I should. Whereas when God has our heart, it's I want to call such and such because they need my help. And that's what a living sacrifice is. A living sacrifice is not the acts that a person does. It's the person 24-7. And that's what Paul's urging us to do and to be. A living sacrifice in light of God's mercy, in light of what God has done for us. So knowing what a living sacrifice is, let's read on. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, to offer your entire self, offer your character, not just your reputation, your whole character, your whole being, everything you are, that is your true and proper worship. As Luke said last week, when we sing songs, that's praise. How we live seven days a week, 24 hours in a day, that's worship. Or it's not worship, depending on how we live. Worship is not Sunday morning when we roll up to this hall. That's not the extent of worship in our week. If we truly love and want to serve Jesus and see his kingdom grow. That's the starting point. That's the point where we encourage each other. We build each other up. We support each other. We love each other. We laugh with each other. We cry with each other. So that we are nourished. So we can go out to our community and worship God in the community for the other six and a half days a week. That's true and proper worship. For those who don't come to church very regularly, and I know I'm kind of preaching to the converted because you're here, (laughs) but church plays a vital part in your growth 
As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, church is vital, not because you have to go to church to be saved, but because coming to church means you can be loved and supported and encouraged and held accountable. And you can do that for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't come to church, you become a very now malnourished Christian, a very warped-shaped Christian, and your easy pickings for Satan. If you know people who go, yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church because church is full of imperfect people. Yeah, it is. There isn't one perfect person in this room, speaker included. But guess what? They're not perfect either. But when we all support and love each other, we can all grow. And a person who doesn't come to church runs the very big risk of they're relying on themselves to teach themselves about God, not relying on their family. So if we go into verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we flick over quickly to Philippians, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, continue to grow and mature in Christ, continue to strive to be more Christ-like in your own life and reflect Christ out. That's what it means to work out your salvation. It doesn't mean to work out, can I say, two ways to live better. It's how can I live out Christ better, more effectively, shine his light brighter. That's working out your salvation. With fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you and to will and act in order to fulfil his good purpose. God has a plan. God has goals and he wants and invites you to join with him in his plans. How often do we go, God, here's my plans, can you bless them? How often do we ask God to join us on our plans rather than go to God, God, what are you doing? How can I join you in that? There's a big difference in mindset because when we ask God to join us in our plans, when he chooses not to, we go, well, thanks, God. Here I am slaving away for you and you don't even help me. And that's a me-first attitude. When we say to God, God, what are you doing? How can I be a part of your plans? We're acknowledging that God actually knows better than us and we're joining with him. Now, Paul's urging us to resist the mindset and the pressures of this world that people are using and pushing to conform us to the world. And the world's attitude is very much a me-first attitude. It's very much a me-centred attitude, me-first, and even when a lot of people do good, it's about making sure other people can see it. It's about me-first, what I can do to help you. And when I help you, I better see some reward for this. 
As Christians, we're called to be different from that. We're called to be God first. And so when we love and serve other people, we're doing it. Why? To show them God, not to show them how good we are. So how do we go about that? How do we go about resisting the world and resisting the world trying to conform us to their shape? And how do we go about offering ourselves as living sacrifices? Well, Paul's already given us the answer. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's two paths to this. The word transformed is an active word. What do I mean by that? You can't just sit down. Be transformed. In it, you've got to engage in that process. You can't just sit there and go, "Okay, God, well, how about you, by osmosis, put the Bible into my head so I can start prattling it off whenever I feel like it." It doesn't work like that. You have to put in the effort, the desire, the time. What would happen to mine and Catherine's marriage if we said, oh, yes, yes, we love each other. Catherine's a very lucky woman to have me as a husband. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> she got the short straw. <laughs> but then we never actually spent any time together. We never spoke, didn't watch TV together, didn't complain about referees together. Didn't argue over the remote because Catherine wants to watch AFL and I want to watch NRL. And we only have one TV in the house, deliberately. We didn't cook dinner together, i.e. Catherine cook and I watch. But if we didn't spend time together, how would our marriage be? It would go down the drain pretty quickly, wouldn't it? Well, it's the same with us and God. If we don't give God time, how do you think our relationship's going to go with him? It's going to go down the drain. Okay, you still may say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian, absolutely. But let's look at each of our lives and actually look at the time we put in to God, to drawing closer to God. Let's, let's actually be honest with ourselves because... The difference between conform and transformed is subtle but very important. Conform comes from the outside to try and change you. It's precious from the outside, whereas transformed is from the inside out. The world seeks to conform us to it from pressures outside in, trying to squeeze us into its mould, Whereas the Holy Spirit works from the inside out to transform us to be more like Christ. And there's a big difference between that. But the second part of it is how do we get transformed then? If we want to be transformed, not conformed, transformed. Well, we just spoke about it. How much time do you give God? How much time do you spend think, honestly thinking about him, praising him, praying to him, reading his word, talking to other Christians? How often and how much effort and time and focus do we give to that? Because if we're going to know 
God's perfect, his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will, we need to know God. Our thinking matters so much. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. It's hard to soar with eagles when you're surrounded by turkeys. Who you're surrounded by matters incredibly into your thinking process and the outworking of that thinking as to what shape your life takes. There's a book I've been reading called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. It's by Louis Giglio, the same guy who did Verse to Golf Ball. I'm sure most of you know Louis at some point, to some degree. He's written a book called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. I'd highly recommend it. It talks about changing the way we think and how we can... um, what's happening in the spiritual battle for our minds, because there is a spiritual battle, and how to work with God in that spiritual battle, not against God in that spiritual battle. It's really quite a good book. I've put it in the bulletin, the details, so look it up. Again, you can get it through. I personally these days get it on Kindle, simply because it's half price, you get it immediately, and I don't have to try to squeeze it onto my bookshelves. But I know some people like actually physically holding a book. I get it. And you can get it that way as well through various places. So what's the end result of this? By offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God for his mercy, to thank you, thank him for his mercy... And having our thinking transformed and renewed, what's the outworking of that? What's the end result of that? That we will know his will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And you will live it out. And that's the difference between a believer in Christ and a follower in Christ. A believer knows Jesus, except Jesus died on the cross. But a follower of Christ knows that and is actually moving. They're actually being transformed. They're journeying with Christ. And too often we interchange those words. And I know last year I may have gone on about that a lot, but it's a really important thing to understand. Am I a believer or am I a follower? What am I actually doing? How does my life reflect what I claim to believe? In virtually all surveys of, with any sort of credibility on spirituality, two things come out quite regularly. The first is that Christianity is on the decline in the West. There's not too many people these days who would argue against that. It is declining. The second thing that comes out of these surveys, and for for those who read the article I put out, I emailed out to people on Friday, that revealed the second truth that a lot of these surveys, with any sort of credibility, actually reveal. Spirituality is on the increase in the West. 
So Christianity is on the decline, but spirituality is at increase. Now, the article the other day was talking more about youth, 13 to 18-year-olds. But it's true across all generations. And that should be exciting. Are they Christians? No, they're designing their own God. Absolutely, no argument. They're taking a little bit of Christianity, they'll take a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, we'll throw in a couple of stars, and Jesus is a good bloke. I'll leave it there, and I've got my God. I've got my religion. As Christians, we go, well, no, that's not right. But let me ask you this, who would you rather speak to? Would you rather speak to someone like that or someone who's agnostic? Agnostic being they just don't care. I'll take the first person every time because they're searching, they're looking. People want to know God. They just don't know where to find him. They think Jesus is a good bloke They hold Jesus in very high regard, just not high enough regard. But they hold him in high regard. They want to find God. And how's the church responding to it? How effectual? We last 50 years. No, I don't think we do. You're not allowed to swear. It's been pretty diabolical, hasn't it? If you look at the church in the West over the last 50 years, we haven't done a crash hot job of representing God to the world. In our hearts, in every person's heart, I'll guarantee you at some their lives, without, this world is not going to feel that ache. Every single person on the planet at some point will hit that point in their life where they work out this world doesn't satisfy. They start. As the church, we're meant to be out there reflecting God accurately so they come looking to Christ and give Christ his dues. So how does that link with today? Well, as you live your life as a living sacrifice, as you truly draw closer to God, so you know his will, so you can live as a a living sacrifice, because he is awesome, because Christ has the superiority, he can do that, and this is life in the spirit, as opposed to death in the flesh where we serve ourselves. This is serving God. Some people go, well, crockies, that's you're laying it on a bit thick, Andrew. Read through the Gospels. See what Jesus says to people. If you don't pick up your cross and follow me daily, you are not worthy. If you don't hate your mother and brother and sister in comparison to how much you love God, you are not worthy to follow me. There are many examples of where Jesus says God needs to be number one priority in our thinking, in our lives, in our hearts, in everything we do. That's not to say you hate your parents. 
But in comparison to how much you love God. Now I can tell you to be honest, Catherine is probably the most awesome that I think ever existed. That's my opinion. You can disagree with me later if you want. But Catherine, if Catherine loves me more than she loves God, she is not fulfilling her role as a wife. And if I love Catherine more than I love God, then I'm not being the husband God wants me to be. God has to be number one in our lives. That's not to say I don't love Catherine, but if I love, put, have God where God deserves to be in my life, I will love Catherine with a deeper love than if I'm doing it on my own strength. We need to understand the priority that God deserves in our lives and that involves a change of thinking, transforming what we have done in the past and working out that we need to do things differently if we want to be more effective than what we have been. Anyone know what today is? You thought I'd forgotten. You thought I'd forgotten. First sermon back in three months, he just behaved himself. (laughs) I thought I was being pretty well behaved actually. Thanks for the support everyone. Anyone want to have a guess what today is? No. Cool. (laughs) No, not artichokes. Something far more important than artichokes. International Safety Pin Day. (laughs) International Safety Pin Day. Now, I mention that because the story behind the the invention of the safety pin and what happened is actually quite interesting. It was in... The safety pin was invented by a guy by the name of Walter Hunt in about 1849 or so, okay? Now, the reason he invented the safety pin was because he owed his friend $15 and didn't have the money to pay his friend back. He invented the safety pin and gave his friend the rights to all royalties of the safety pin. Pretty handy payback of $15 plus interest, don't you think? Now, what's that got at all got to do with today? You would think, and I would certainly think, that Walter could be, come 19, or 1855 or, you know, six, ten years after giving his friend the royalties to the safety pin, he might start getting a little resentful. Maybe you want to claim... It back, okay, you got your 15 bucks and a few more. I want, the, I want it back. But there's no, there's no talk of that. He was happy for his friend. He was happy that he paid him back. It was a gift. He didn't try to take it back. Now, how's that got anything to do with today? Well, God gives us a gift. He didn't owe us anything, but he gave us a gift. And that gift is his son on the cross. And we come to that next week at Easter. But he calls us not just to look at the gift and go, oh, wow, thank you. He calls us to use that, to reach out, to respond to that. And the more we understand the gift, the more we will want to reach out and show other people how awesome this gift is. 
And a lot of Christians find themselves looking at friends and they go, oh, look at, look at them. They get to go to Hamilton Island every year and this person just bought themselves a new car and this person's just added an extension onto their home. And look at this person. They're getting promoted up through work because they managed to dodgy a couple of things. And these people could buy all the things they wanted to buy because they didn't tithe and they didn't give their money away to people who needed it. If only I could have a life like them. Really? Facebook's probably one of the worst inventions I think I've ever seen. And you know why I say that, despite the fact I'm on it? You see in other people exactly what they want you to see. And nothing more. When someone puts a post up, all you see and read is what they put up. But then our minds go, oh, how lucky are they? Look how pretty they are. They must be having a fun life. Oh, they must... Maybe they're not. But you're not going to see that. It's comparing apples with oranges if we start comparing our lives to those around us in the world who we're being told and informed to. It's completely barking up the wrong tree. Too often, we're ineffectual for God and we're nowhere near as our efforts to reach out and show God to other people lack the results and we often say, oh, I just don't have that ability. I'm just not good enough. I'd like to suggest it's got nothing to do with ability. A, there's the Holy Spirit working in you and he can do whatever he wants. But let's put that aside for a sec. I think it's because we lack the vision of how awesome God is. I think it's because we lack God's love. It's because we lack God's eyes to see the community as God sees it. We lack the ears of God to hear the community as God hears them. It's got nothing to do with everything to do with the fact that we don't know God well enough. And so we don't have the vision. So what do we do about that? What, what does that change about tomorrow? Anyone remember the song, What If God Was One of Us? By Joni Osborne or whatever? What If God Was One of Us? By Joni Osborne? Came out mid-90s or something. Interesting song. Look it up on YouTube later, I'm not going to sing it. But in that song, she asked the question, would you really want to actually see God if it meant you had to believe? And there's a question which I think a lot of people 
would actually say no to. I don't want to meet God if, believe, if meeting God means I have to believe because there's no other option. But too often, us in the church, we do something similar. We don't let ourselves get close enough to God. We want to get close because we know there is a God who, who loves us and wants to save us, but we don't want to get too close that he starts taking us out of our comfort zones. I like my comfort zone. I don't like change. Would you really want to read the Bible each day and pray to God each day and meet with other followers each day if doing so with a 100% commitment and effort to doing so meant you would change? Would you do it? It's a deathly silence, isn't it? Here's three things to help you on your way. If you decide, actually, yeah, God deserves everything and I'm going to give God everything. Everything. I'm selling out 100% to God. Here's three things that you can change tomorrow. The first one, read your Bible each day. I know. I've started in the last month or so reading Hebrews five verses a day and just five and I'll read it out loud and I'll read those five verses out about four times slowly just to myself four times these five verses then next next day I'll move on to the next five verses the next five verses yeah it takes a while to get through Hebrews doing that but you're taking so much more about what that actually says what the key point of that is and then you spend five minutes praying about that exact point what was the major thing in those five verses and then you sit there quietly for five minutes see if God wants to say anything back sometimes he does sometimes he doesn't that's the first thing actually spend time in God's word deeply in God's word. It doesn't matter what the time of day. I know a lot of people say, oh, it has to be first thing, so that it's first thing in the morning and the rest of your day is influenced. It can be last thing at night if that's what's going to work for you. But whatever's going to work is going to work, and so do it then. Just do it. The second thing, pray. Hardly revolutionary stuff here. I was almost embarrassed to put these down as the application of the week going. There's hardly anything new there. <laughs> kind of boring, really. Maybe I could come up with something far more interesting or challenging. But if you want to know God's will, first thing you've got to do is get to know God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Let your life be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By stop hanging around with turkeys and start soaring with eagles. Second thing, pray. And not just with yourself. That's good. I'm not saying don't pray by yourself. Pray with other people. Pray 
come to prayer meetings, either Monday night on Zoom, Tuesday morning here. But here's the, here's the challenge with praying. Call someone. Let's create a culture where we all call each other each day, just go, hey, how you doing? I just want to pray with you. Nothing's wrong. I just want to pray. If someone rang you up tomorrow morning and said, hey, can we pray? There's nothing wrong. I just want to pray. You'd feel a bit weird, wouldn't you, at this point, if they rang just out of the blue. But why don't we have that culture in the church where we ring just even just one person a day? If every single person in the room rung, made one physical phone call each day, and just said, hey, how you doing? Have a chat for five minutes about how life's going, how the day's going. And then say, hey, can we just pray? There's no problems. I don't need prayer for any particular... I just want to pray with you. Prayer is so underrated. But it's going to help us get to know God better and be transformed. And the third thing is meet with other people, not just on a Sunday. Meet with other believers. Because that's important, as we spoke about at the beginning, it's important for your support, encouragement, growth, accountability. Now, some people hate the word accountability. They hate the word accountability. They hate the word accountability partner. They hate the whole idea of it. Okay, change it. To, you can change it to discipleship partner. You could change it to coffee buddy. You could change it to journey compadre. Whatever you want to call it, meet with other people who have a like mind who actually want to see you grow and be more effective for Christ and who you want to see become more effective for Christ. Meet with each other. Meet up for a coffee. Meet up for a cake. Go for a walk if you're meant to be like me and losing weight. Actually meet up. Spend time with each other. Because as we spend time with each other, praying for each other and spending time in God's word, what happens? We become transformed and can live out as living sacrifices. And I guarantee you, you will know more about God's will if you do those three things each day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great and heavenly God. We thank you that you do want us to know you. We know that for a fact. Your word promises it. You sent your son to earth and you have now given us your Holy Spirit. You want us to know you. You want us to live our lives glorifying you. And I pray that you will help us to do exactly that. And so challenge us, work in us, in your son's name. Amen. We're going to have another song now.